To really enjoy the intricate Scandinavian coastline, you can't beat sailing. These small kind of fjords that you go through, small canals, a lot of small like wooden houses in different colors, and it's really beautiful, really scenic. Coming up, a tour guide from Oslo takes us out for a spin. If you prefer dry land, guides from Holland recommend easy bicycle routes through farmland and cities that can take you all the way to Amsterdam. If you're really into cycling, what you should do is start in Den Haag and cycle right past the coast of the North Sea, up north to Harlem, and maybe even further. Plus, Robert McFarland helps us explore the underland beneath your feet, from caves to quarries and even the deep blue recesses of a glacier. And you're going backwards in time as you go downwards in space. You're going into the history of the glacier. You're going into the ancient past of the Earth. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. You might expect someone who spends time in caves and ravines to be a man of few words. But as a teacher of literature and environmental humanities at Cambridge, Robert McFarlane is one of today's most eloquent writers in exploring how we interact with the natural world. He describes a sense of deep-time awareness you can develop when you explore the realms beneath your feet. Robert joins us in just a bit to investigate the Underland on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also look at interesting alternatives to Amsterdam with advice from a pair of Dutch touring specialists. They'll help you get the most out of a visit to the Netherlands. Let's open the hour further up in the North Sea as we take in the scenic route along the coastlines of Scandinavia. A few summers ago, tour guide Paul Johansson invited me to go sailing with him from Oslo all the way to Copenhagen. But some of us were just too busy to enjoy such an outing back then. So my son Andy joined him instead for what he later told me was the time of his life. Paul's with us now in an interview we recorded before the pandemic to tell me what I missed out on. Paul, thanks for joining us. Tak, and the ship ahoy. A ship ahoy. <laughs> yeah. How would you say that in Norwegian? Well, it's actually ship ahoy. You say ship ahoy. Ship ahoy and flask akvit. And what Sh- is that? Ship ahoy and a bottle of Akavit. <laughs> <laughs> Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. Yeah, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, you were sailing from Copenhagen to Oslo. Mm-hmm. How long is that? Uh, how many days does it take to sail that? So we used uh, about six days uh, from from Copenhagen up to up to Oslo, so, um, and then following the mostly the the coast of Sweden. So mostly you're you're enjoying the coast of Sweden. Yeah, yeah. It's more you can go straight up if you like uh, and see nothing more than ocean, but it's more interesting to follow the coastline yeah. and visiting all these small uh, communities that you have uh, along the Swedish uh, coast. So what are some of the experiences you'd have sailing up the coast in a? How how big was your boat? My boat is uh, 33 foot. Uh, it's uh, Swedish. Uh-huh. It's the only Swedish thing I trust. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good boat, actually. Yeah. Um, it, it's a sailboat and um, has a small engine as well. But uh, So there's small towns. Are there marinas where you can tie up and yeah. use a shower and, yeah. and go shopping and have a coffee and a beer? and. A lot of Scandinavians sail, so the marinas are very well developed. So um, you come to a marina, you moor your boat. Mm-hmm. There will be an, be an um, like an 
automat, like how you say um, a machine, a machine, yeah. a machine where you can just punch in the size of your boat, ah. and it accepts credit cards. You pay by the meter. <laughs> yeah, you pay by the meter. One night, ten meters. You One pay night, so ten much. meters. You pay so much. It gives you a code to the to the toilets, Wi-Fi password, and it gives you prints out the sticker that you just stick on your boat. Now that sounds great. Are you a member of a yacht club in Norway? I am actually a member of the of the Royal Norwegian Yacht Club. The Royal it sounds Is quite. There, fancy. Are there royals in it also? The royals are in it. They're sailors. So conceivably, you could be out sailing next to the the prince or the king. Oh yeah, yeah. So you you you're going up the coast of Stockholm. You're stopping at little towns. Uh, are there national parks, uh, places where you really uh, pay attention to the nature, or is it just all quite nice? Yeah, it's it's all quite nice actually. It's uh, a lot of small um, small islands and uh, like these small kind of fjords that you go through, small canals, a lot of small like wooden houses in, in different colors, and it's really beautiful, really scenic. Paul Bjorn Johansen is taking us sailing along the Scandinavian coast right now on Travel with Rick Steves, just in time to celebrate the big Norwegian national holiday they call Constitution Day. His website for Johansen Travel and Sail is johansentravel.com, and that's spelled with an E-N. Paul also shares videos from Norway and Scandinavia on his own YouTube channel. We have a link to an early spring walk to one of his favorite islands in the Oslo Fjord. You can find it in the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So when you're sailing up here, do you find it's an international crowd? Is there some sort of a community conviviality in the marinas where you've got Germans and Danes and mm-hmm. Norwegians or or what's the social scene for somebody who's in a yacht club and out uh, having a vacation? People always help each other out. That's my experience from from yachting in uh, in Scandinavia that they're, they're, if you come to a new harbor if someone's at the docks and they see you come they will always come and, and, and offer you a hand to, to tie the ropes or anything so it's uh, that's a good atmosphere. That's a very nice atmosphere. We have yeah. that same thing here in the United States, of mm-hmm. course, when we're sailing. And as you're uh, enjoying the coast of uh, Sweden, what sort of recreation is there? Are people swimming? Is there fishing? Did you catch any fish? Oh, yeah. People are are swimming and uh, they're fishing. You can uh, you can catch a lot of codfish. Um, in the summer, there's a lot of mackerel. Hmm. A lot of mackerel. You can actually plan on eating the harvest of the sea as you sail? If you're a good fisherman, yes. Or you might go hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it's more uh, more uh, flatbread. And yeah, that's flatbread and brown cheese, yeah. <laughs> so before your trip, you're going off on a one-week trip. Uh, how do you outfit the boat? What sort of um, provisions do you stock? Well, I stock up with a lot of uh, porridge mm-hmm. because that's uh, that's usually what we have for breakfast. Is because, that right? Porridge. Yeah, Not, porridge. Yeah. Oh, like oat porridge. It's um, oatmeal. Oatmeal porridge. It's very fast to make. It's very nu- nutritious uh, right. as well, and it's warm. Yeah, so, that's kind of nice. So it's kind of the perfect meal. And then for lunch, you have some open-faced um, sandwiches. And um, for dinner, yeah, fish, <laughs> hopefully. Fish and porridge. <laughs> fish and porridge. <laughs> Depends. Now, my memory of boating with my parents up in the San Juan Islands here is uh, enjoying the sunset. And mm. there's a sort of a quietness as the sun's going down. And, and people have their happy hour and there's little munchies and some Hard liquor and uh, yeah. enjoying that. What's the scene and what's the happy hour scene? In Have you heard way? about the, the anchor, the anchor drink? No, no. So that's that's a term. That's a kind of a sailor's term. That uh, as soon as you throw the anchor, you have a drink. An anchor drink. Yeah. So I we like call that. it an anchor drink. So what drink? What do you serve your crew on a, that's for an anchor an, drink? An akovit. An akovit. Yeah. And that really starts the evening where the work's done and now you're going to just be mellow. Just relax and then you know talk because actually when you're sailing. 
you're kind of focused on sailing and navigating safely. So then in the evening, that's, that's when you really socialize. My son said you were very relaxed and laid back, except if you had to run to get some uh, snuff tobacco. <laughs> some snuff tobacco, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he had to run with me one time. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, tell me about the snuff tobacco in Norway, because you can't smoke in public really in Norway, can you? Uh, no, not really. So we has, have this thing we call snus, and um, I, I only use it when I sail. Mm. I just think it's nice to have a little snus under my lip. Um, oh, so it's not, you're not, no, it's, it's chewing tobacco then? It's not chewing. You just put it under your lip. In a little it, packet. In a little little packet in your yeah. upper lip. And this is something you can find in Sweden and Norway. Okay. Uh, it's it's not uh, legal in the, in the European Union. But in Sweden, they got an exception. It's not legal they, in the European no, Union? Why Sw- not? Sweden would not have entered the European Union if they hadn't given them that uh, exception. It's that important. It's that important. And it's called snus. <laughs> snus. You know, I noticed after the uh, all of the changes in hygiene and modern, uh, you know, Europe getting together, I used to see cigarette butts in mm-hmm. the urinals. And yeah. I don't see that anymore. I see these little packets of Those snus. little pouches, yeah. Little pouches. Yeah. So yeah. people still get their tobacco, but they can't smoke yeah. indoors. Exactly. I think people smoke outside and it's cold, so bars will even provide a blanket and a and A, a blanket and a heater. Yeah, you see people outside in December, January. In the winter in Austria. In the winter. They've yeah, got to yeah. have their cigarettes. It's totally normal. But not inside. This mm-hmm. is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Paul Johansson from Oslo. He's a member of the Royal Norwegian Yacht Club. Uh, yes, exactly. What perks comes with that when you're a member of that? Oh, there is actually a perk. Yeah, you, can, you can have the, um, the royal flag on your boat, which is uh, like the Norwegian flag. But in the middle, you have the symbol of the king. So, so whenever I'm sailing around in the Oslo Fjord, everybody can see that I belong to that uh, harbor. So that's sort of a top-end uh, uh, sailor. Yeah, I guess you can say that. <laughs> is, is there a, a waiting list to get into the yacht club? Um, yeah, there's a limited number of berths. So, um, so um, some years there's a list to yeah. get in. Yeah. Now, but, when you are sailing, if you know how to sail in the United States, mm-hmm. would, would the same international uh, rules and the, the symbols of the colors of the buoys and so on, is it all the same? Yeah, pretty much the same. So um, if you know the buoys, if you know the colors and, and all this, you can come sail in Scandinavia as well. And then when you finally finished your trip and you're coming into Oslo, mm-hmm. you happened to arrive on Liberation Day, didn't you? We did. And this was so interesting because we had a, a German on the boat. And, uh, and as we were sailing up the Oslo Fjord, we sailed uh, past the Oskarsborg uh, Fortress, which were, was where they sunk um, the first ship that, that the Germans came deal. with. That was a big deal. The yeah. Norwegians, that, yeah. with a, such a small military, sunk a Nazi yeah. warship. The Blüschow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he and I, you know, while, while Andy was back there steering the ship. So, wait a second. You, so you crewed the boat in Copenhagen and you assembled a crew. Yeah. My son, the American, the German. The German and, uh, and a colleague of your son. Okay. Uh, a Norwegian girl, actually. I, I, okay. Yeah. And how did you, did you just send out an email saying, I'm heading out, or did you have a... Yeah, well, I posted on, on Facebook. And um, this German guy, I met him in, when I was traveling in Morocco. Okay. So, and then the, the context is the Germans occupied Norway in, yeah. in your grandfather's day, you know, mm-hmm. for like four or five years. Yeah. Okay, so you're with this German sailing to Oslo. Mm-hmm. You come to the place where the famous sinking of the Blucher. Yeah. And then you come into Oslo on the day Norwegians were liberated from the Germans. Yes. And you've got a German on your boat. I got a German on my boat, and I, I hoisted up the Norwegian flag, an extra flag. And in respect of my German friend, I also had the German flag. So we had both the German and the Norwegian flag up. 
and we were giving each other a hug of peace as we were oh, sailing that's, in. <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. And that would it have was. been, what, 60, 70 years yeah. after yeah. that great day. And the fun thing, his uh, grandfather of my German friend, he was in the, um, the German um, Navy. So he was actually stationed in Norway during the Second World War. <laughs> and then as you came into Oslo with mm-hmm. your German friend who has that amazing story, how does Oslo celebrate and what did you see from the boat Liberation Day? Oh, there were there were a lot of flags everywhere. Um, Norwegians are great at flying their flag. They are, you know, especially on that day. The thing is that um, when, when the liberation came, it was only one week until the 17th of May, the National Day. So, and it kind of took a week to, to put everything together. And that's why the National Day is such a big celebration. Oh, it's kind okay. of got a... A double push. A double push, yeah. A double push. So, so we, we celebrate the National Day much more than we cele- celebrate the, the Liberation okay. Day. So May 17, of course, is mm-hmm. Norway's Bastille Day or Fourth of July or whatever. Every yeah. country's got yeah. one of these. Yeah. And you happen to get double the celebration because May 17 goes back to what happened on May 17th? Uh, that's our constitutional day. So, Const- that, so well, that, as you got your independence from... From the Danes. From the Danes. Yeah, so oh, okay. the Danes, they think this is a bit funny that we're celebrating. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got, you got freedom from the Danes, yeah. freedom from the Germans, and May 17th, <laughs> yeah. and you sailed in. Paul Johansson, thank you so much for taking us on a little cruise. Oh, you're welcome. Copenhagen and uh, Rick, you're welcome to come sail whenever you want. I want <laughs> to do that very much. Tusen <laughs> <laughs> tak, Paul. Wall Street Journal calls him one of the great nature writers of our generation. Up next, Robert McFarland tells us why he's interested not only in what we make of places, but in what these places make of us. We'll explore the Underland next on Travel with Rick Steves. And a little later, we get options to Amsterdam, from Harlem to Rotterdam, for great day trips or to just get a different perspective on the Netherlands. As a traveler, I've long made it my mission to get beneath the surface of people and places to better understand the world and our place in it. But writer, teacher, and explorer Robert McFarlane takes that mission literally. In his book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, Robert travels to the Earth's underworlds, its caves and catacombs and deeply hidden places. In the sunless subterranean world that others have long avoided, he found places that reveal where we come from, and hint at our future. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. So your book is Underland. What exactly is Underland? It's everything that lies beneath us. It's all that we know so little about. You look up at the stars and you see billions of miles. You see light crossing the universe to you. You look down at your toes and your sight stops at your shoe leather and the tarmac and the grass. We we know almost nothing of what's beneath us. And we're just discovering the first things about it. That is so interesting because we invest so much energy and money into, into looking up and out. And we don't hardly look down and, and under. So what do, you, what do you explore? What are the frontiers down there? <laughs> well, you, you can't get too far down as a human. That's the first thing to say because you, uh, you, you burn up pretty fast. But we, uh, we're starting to understand what goes on in the crust not just geologically, which we've known about for a while now, but but actually biologically. We're discovering the deep earth biome, the biological dark matter, as it's been nicknamed, that 
exists um, many kilometers down into the crust. There's a seething, teeming world of microbial life down there that science is just beginning to set its technological eyes on. I mean, this is amazing. Reading your book, you, you're, you talk about deep life ecosystems. Something like twice the volume of biomatter that's in the oceans is is in this underland and the biodiversity uh, as, as much as the Amazon, more than all of the living matter above the surface. How can that be? I just can't imagine <laughs> biomass underground. Is it is it a new kind of thing other than plants and animals? Well, it's it's all microbial, but there's just so much of it. Um, what is microbial? Oh, bacterial, bacterial life oh. predominantly, microorganisms. So, and they're extremophiles. These are these are critters that are living under vast pressure, incredible heat, no light. I mean, they're Extreme, astonishing. What was that word? Extremophiles? Extremophiles. I loved it. I want to write a book oh. called Extremophiles at some <laughs> <Love> point. <that. laughs> I think I might be a human extremophile when I'm not being <laughs> a, a homebody, which is my basic default position. Well, you uh, have to be an extremophile to, to live down there, right? Because you don't get any sun. It's, is it, and there's no oxygen. Uh, how do things live down there? Well, they're, they're, they're hard. I mean, they they yeah, these are ultra-evolved microorganisms. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you don't need to go far down. I mean, the Western science, if we want to call it that, modern science has just, only in the past 20 years, has discovered stuff a few a few centimeters down into the soil. It's it's just discovered the, the wood wide web, as it's beautifully nicknamed, this mycorrhizal fungal network that joins individual trees into intercommunicating forests. 20 years, that, that's how young our understanding of, of something so, that is seeded under minute, the soil. Wait for, a minute, yeah. back up the truck here. Trees, <laughs> com trees communicate underground? <laughs> they do, they do. They do they, 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 by, this, by this dazzling um, labyrinth filigree of, of fungi. So fungi penetrate the root tips of trees and plants at a cellular level, and they create uh, an interface there. And they then weave out through the soil in thousands of, of miles of mycelium, as it's called, and they, they, they penetrate the roots of other plants and trees. And in this way, they form a, you know, a version of our, our world wide web, but it's a material one. It's, it's made of um, roots and fungi. And along this can pass chemical messages, resources. Uh, trees can share, if you want to put it like that, resources mm -hmm. from one to the other. And it's it's astonishingly complex. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert McFarlane. He's an extremophile, and he loves telling us about the world beneath our feet. And that's what he explores in his book. The book's called Underland, A Deep Time Journey. So, Robert, we're talking about this vast ecosystem underground. Is it just curious, or do you feel like there's some value? What's the reason that we should know about this and appreciate it? Well, I mean, we've been talking about the, the, the more than human, the non-human life that seethes under our feet that we know so little about. But we're, you know, we're, we're underlanders as well. We have been drawn down into caves, into darkness, to leave our marks. Those red handprints on the walls of the caves in Sulawesi, in Malatraviezo, in Spain, that we all know that amazing sort of first sign of, of human presence where a mouthful of ochre dust is spat against a hand placed on a limestone cave wall. We, we go into the underland and into the darkness to see things and discover mm. things as well. You wrote about a fascinating parallel where you spent three days underground in Paris, and that's a whole, that could be a whole book in itself, I imagine. And you saw some graffiti artist just from our generation who spray painted a silhouette of his hand on the wall. 
Yeah. And then you, you related that to this tens of thousands of year old prehistoric cave paintings. Talk a little bit about that. What was that like and what thoughts did that stir in you when you saw this same deep need to paint your hand on a wall in the darkness? <laughs> it, it, it was eerie. It was spine shivering. I'd been down underground for two days. Um, That's the longest I've gone without seeing the sun and, and, and I hope will be until I die. And so we were pretty strung out. But even so, suddenly to see this, to me, very familiar sign, a sign that I'd studied in archaeological and prehistoric contexts, right there on the wall left with a spray can one, two, five years ago. And I suddenly thought, we've never been modern. <laughs> we're, 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 we, we love to think that we're exceptional in our own time, but here we are fulfilling the same instinct in the darkness that arguably our Neolithic predecessors did. How, how old was that first hand painted? So the oldest European hand uh, was dated uh, last year to around 64,000 years ago. Um, 64,000. That's, what's that? That's 12 times as old as the pyramids. More, more. More, more than um, 12 times as old as the pyramid. Yeah. And more than that, it's also about 20,000 years before humans, Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens right. are thought to have reached that part of Europe. So it's so a disputed this, dating, but I mean, astonishing. We, when we think about repelling down into these grand worlds as a tourist, you can have thoughts about prehistoric peoples. You can have thoughts about ancient peoples, the, the fascination with Hades and the underworld from classical Greek mythology and so on. And then you can also think about indigenous peoples and their appreciation of the underworld. Can you weave that together a little bit to give us a better appreciation of how this is kind of a timeless wonder for human beings? Yeah, I, I, I have yet to meet um, a, a culture, a, a kind of mythos that doesn't have an underworld. It's there in, in Norse myth, uh, the world tree that joins the upper world of the heavens, uh, the, the underworld of the dead and the, the surface world of the living are conjoined by the great axis of the world tree. That, that tripartite structure is also there in Sami mythology. It's also there in Yoruba mythology from Africa. And very often the underworld is not only the place of death, it's also the place of safety and vision. So in Greek myth, you often get people going down into the underworld to learn from the dead because the dead are wise. And we are still doing this as scientists, as human beings. Our glaciologists are drilling mile deep ice cores up from Antarctica to foretell what our climate futures will be. That to me is science as myth in the most beautiful way. I was in Nuremberg with a, with a local guide and we were talking about how the city was bombed where there was nothing still standing, but they rebuilt the city on the same footprint because there's so much underground that was not bombed that you didn't want to have to rebuild. But that gave you the foundation to build a new city, even though the city we knew and we recognized was totally destroyed. That's fascinating to hear. And it, it, the, the underground is a safe place uh, in many ways. We've, we've sought it for shelter. It's where we place the things we love most uh, are, are dead. We, we bury them because we want them to be safe. We want, we want to be able to stand on a known site on the surface of the world and look down to a safe place where our dead are. Um, so it's a secure place. And I, I love that idea of a, you know, of, a, of a city surviving even after it's been raised above ground, that that gives the blueprint. Robert McFarland is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves from his home in England. Robert explores what you might call the environmental humanities in his teaching at Emmanuel College at Cambridge. 
he examines a deep-time journey of what's revealed beneath the surface, from Yorkshire to the Paris catacombs and the melting ice of Greenland, in his book, Underland. Robert also investigates the landscape's connection to the human heart in books including Mountains of the Mind, Wild Places, The Lost Worlds, The Old Ways, and Landmarks. He also co-authored Ghost Ways, after journeys to what he calls two of England's most unquiet places. We have links to Robert's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Robert, this is a, a travel show, and people dream about going and seeing amazing things. Tell me just what you've seen. You talk about things you want to never forget. What's an image you've seen in the underland that you never want to forget? And then what's one that you wish you had never witnessed and that you won't be able to forget? Hmm. Great question. Um, somebody said that I should get a business card after writing this book, which said, I go to these places so you don't have to. Um, but uh, but there the were, <laughs> the were miracles. There were wonders as well as, as fear and horror. And the miracle I remember most clearly is a blue miracle. And it it, it is rappelling down into a moulin, a, a vertical meltwater shaft on a a vast glacier on East Greenland, tidal glacier. And I have sailed down into it. And as you go, that, that incredible blue of deep old ice just soaked me to my bones. I couldn't believe there was a part of me that wasn't blue. And you're going backwards in time as you go downwards in space. You're going into the history of the glacier. You're going into the ancient past of the earth, a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand years by the time you're 60 feet down. Uh, I could have kept going. It was like dropping into the skin of a creature half as big as the world. My goodness. Is there anything you've seen or that you've witnessed that it's just not right to see that you, you wish you hadn't seen? Yeah. I mean, we, we've weaponized landscapes as well as worshipping them. So in the, mm -hmm. in, in the First World War and the Second World War, the, the limestone landscapes of, of Europe, um, particularly the Dolomites around the Julian Alps, uh, in, in northeast Italy, Slovenia, they became sites of killing. Uh, mountains were hollowed out to provide protection, but also shell sites. And they, mm -hmm. the big dough lines, the big sinkholes in the limestone were used as sites of execution as well. And, and I remember being just stopped short by this, these dazzlingly beautiful limestone landscapes, which I knew had been themselves purposed for murder. Dr. Robert McFarlane is a down-to-earth fellow at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, where he teaches topics that explore how we talk about our place in nature and the environment. A number of his works have been adapted for TV and radio plays by the BBC. He's joining us from his home in England right now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore the subterranean world that he writes about in his book, Underland. Robert, you know, I'd like to talk just for a few minutes that we have left about some sightseeing uh, when it comes to the underground uh, around the world. I've done it in Europe. Uh, you talked first about underground in Paris. Um, that city is famous for its underground. I mean, it's much more than the sewer system and the subway system, but that alone is a world of its own. Yeah, yeah. Paris is riddled, as you say. And, it, and you of course, spent it two had... or three days down there without seeing the sun. Yeah, this, this, so this is the quarry labyrinth, basically. It's the stone that built Paris came out of it. So it left a negative space down there. And, and in the 18th century, when Paris ran out of places to store its dead, they became ossuaries. They became catacombs where, where the bones of the dead were wrecked. And you've probably millions, been down into those. Been a, millions of skeletons, artfully stacked, lovingly stacked, just so beautifully, all the skulls and the tibia and the fibia and yeah. so on. And you think they were taken there in wheelbarrows by 
priests and, and parishioners that were emptying the cemeteries around every church in Paris. That, those scenes from the 18th century, the clip-clop of the, of the horses mm. as they pulled the black-covered carts, as they exhumed the dead for weeks and months on end every night, and down they went into the catacomb. I was just very impressed by the prehistoric caves in southern France and in northern Spain. What, what's one of your favorite moments just gaining respect for prehistoric peoples and the Underland? I went up to Arctic Norway. There's very little painted cave art that survives in the Arctic for obvious reasons, not so many people, um, very harsh conditions. Uh, and I made a very arduous winter journey, a foolish winter journey in retrospect, to get to a sea cave that has these red dancing figures from the Bronze Age painted oh, on it. Um, yeah. And walking in there, eventually finding the figures faintly on the cave wall, I, I wept. How, how old would those have been? They're about two thousand years. They're not. They're nothing compared to Maltraviezo. Right. Or, but still, when but, you think of that way, if they're two thousand time of the Julius Caesar, absolutely. And the hard, hard lives they lived. But they, they, they wanted to make art in a sheltered place. Speaking of hard lives, I know from my travels that in Turkey we've got these fascinating underground cities where thousands of people lived in many layers, and they go back to Christian times, and then they were just abandoned, and, and other people who needed a place for cover would inhabit these, and it would be rampaging tribes, it would be Christians who were escaping persecution, it would be downtrodden people through the centuries, and today we can visit them. A lot of them are in Cappadocia, in the center of Turkey. Uh, I, just, I find it beautiful and generous. They created an entire underground city world um, in order to to save their people. And you know, we th these are bunkers, right? These were oh, yeah. They, they were taking whole whole cities down there, whole communities. Amazing. Yeah. One of my favorite things underground is in uh, Slovenia. It's a karst area, right? Karst mm -hmm. is uh, just a honeycombed uh, underland where you've got all sorts of caverns and so on, and they're open to tourism. And I went into one of these caves and it was so, so vast and it had, you know, sun streaming in from the distance. And I, I don't know if you remember those flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz, but I thought this must be where they, they hang out, you know. I, I also love the limestone of Slovenia and, and, that, and Trieste where it borders into Italy. I, I descended a, something called the Abisso di Trebeziano, the Abyss of Trebeziano. I dropped a thousand feet down through a limestone funnel uh, and then into a space the size of a of a cathedral filled with dunes of black sand that had been washed there by an underground river that ran as river not as groundwater the Timavo and I walked across that black sand the strangest desert I'll ever enter to the shores of of this starless river mm. this is travel with Rick Steves we've been talking with Robert McFarlane and his book is Underland a deep time journey and Robert, we've been talking about how we can be uh, inspired to learn about ourselves and where we came from and also to be opened up to the fact that there's a lot more that we haven't even crossed paths with yet. Uh, what would you like us to take away from your book uh, about the great underland? What, what should we appreciate? Uh, two things. How ignorant we are. We're, we're an arrogant species and our arrogance gets us into a great deal of trouble, but we know so little about what's under our feet. We don't know what the universe is made of. Um, we're, we're actually, we're poor decision makers and I think it would behove us to be more humble in many ways. So mm -hmm. a humility, but also a, a wonder at the world. Uh, and I mean, this is what you convey and all that you do, Rick, is a sheer sense of the world's gift to us. And mm. we are responsible for it in deep time. Deep time has given us this world and we are giving it on. 
and the legacies we leave are our responsibility. Yes, it's I was just thinking stewardship. We're blessed with yeah. this beautiful environment. Uh, the more we know it, the more we're likely to be good stewards of it. So let's be curious, let's explore, let's share. Robert McFarland, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for uh, being my tour guide for the Underland, a deep time journey. Hey, Rick, profound thanks, deep thanks. <laughs> deep thanks for a deep world. surface in the Netherlands. That's next as we look for what you can enjoy outside of busy Amsterdam. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you don't count the little city-states, the Netherlands would be the most densely populated country in Europe. First impressions usually include how tidy and efficient everything looks. Before the COVID pandemic, dense crowds of summer tourists, especially young partiers in Amsterdam, gave off an entirely different impression of the city. To help us look at our options outside of the usual hotspots and to enjoy the Netherlands like the Dutch do, we're joined today by two local tour guides who specialize in showing their country to American visitors. Jody van Engelsdorp lives in historic Harlem, about 30 kilometers from Amsterdam in North Holland. It's a charming city near the famous tulip fields on the way to the North Sea. And Hans de Kiefde was born and raised in Rotterdam, Europe's largest seaport in South Holland. He now lives in a small town just outside of Harlem. Our interview was recorded before the pandemic. Jody, you're young and energetic. When you go to Amsterdam, where do you like to go? I still like to go to Amsterdam, but when I go, I go to a north of Amsterdam, where that's where you can still find some locals. And not only the tourists have the problems that Amsterdam is so full, but it's also the locals that are actually moving out of Amsterdam and they're moving into Haarlem and all these places that are in a neighborhood because it's just not pleasant to live there anymore. So there's an exodus of some local people from Amsterdam is that's impacting your town, Harlem. Oh, yeah. It's become very snob, as we would say. <laughs> snob. So here comes an Amsterdammer into your little town, and all of a yeah. sudden the bar is raised. And it's changing, but it's still nice. Uh, but it's I feel that Harlem is getting, well, getting more of a well, partying place. Or, partying place. Yeah, yeah, which is good. But. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of alternatives, that's for sure. And transportation is so good in the Netherlands that you can go anywhere quite easily. So outside of Amsterdam, if you're visiting uh, the Netherlands, there's, there's a lot to see and do. You both uh, uh, live near or in Harlem. How, how would you describe Harlem, Jody? Harlem is a beautiful town. I don't want to be biased, but I think it's the best town of the world. It feels like a village, even though it is not, because there are uh, everybody knows each other. Um, you have a great, great square where you can just ha sit on the terraces and relax and have drinks, and you're really close to the sand dunes. And it's a, it's a sort of a human-scale town. Yeah. I mean, you just feel like for centuries people have been going to the market here. And uh, the great thing is with the modern infrastructure, you could sleep there and you could be in Amsterdam in, in half an hour. Yeah, it's perfect. Hans, you take groups walking through Harlem. What do you enjoy showing them when you take a group around in Harlem? Okay, um, well, firstly, there's a beautiful church, beautiful market square. And the market square is like a living room of the town. The terrace is there in summer, and you have the, the beautiful view of the church. And the, the town hall is very, it's all very old and very nice. And, 
so then we go through the old streets of Harlem and I explain that it's built on high ground and all the history of the streets and it's got this human aspect. It's center is very small, so everything is in within walking distance. I've got a photograph of the church from the far end of the square, mm-hmm. and I put it right next to a famous painting, mm-hmm. and it's, there's almost no change. Oh, you have, uh, we have a lot of paintings, luckily in the Netherlands, the Golden Age. Uh, actually, the, the Netherlands is, um, we look back in our history visibly more than other countries because the paintings are, there were so many paintings built, made in the Golden Age, also normal life, so not uh, religious art. So we can look back in our normal history. You can learn by more, looking at the art. More than other countries. Yeah, right? I think so. And, it, there must and, and, and there's a beautiful, beautiful painting by Ruisdaal from the dunes. And you see Harlem, and you see the big church sticking out. And then the, the fields with uh, cloth, where they lay them in the sun to, to whiten up. Oh, yeah. Cloth trade and this beautiful, beautiful picture. And if you go there now, I mean, there's still, there's still a few buildings around, but none is taller than the. So there's the some church. there's some restrictions that protect oh, yes. the, the the downtown, especially the the historic. Yeah, core. You're not not allowed to build higher than the gutter of the roof of the church. Oh, okay. And as there's the big church in the middle and smaller at the surrounding area, there's no new buildings, hardly any, higher than this. So the old view is still maintained, and it's unique in the Netherlands and in actually many cities in the world. Now, Jodi, nearby is another very big city, Rotterdam. You could be in Rotterdam in less than an hour from Harlem. What's it like in your mind, Rotterdam? In my mind, it's very industrial and it's very busy and it's more of a crowded place. But I think also yeah, the industrial part comes where in the Second World War, Rotterdam was really heavily bombed and then they had to rebuild it. So uh, that brings that yeah, there you don't see that old characteristics of Harlem. It's not there. You see those high, for me, they're skyscrapers. For you, they might be flats, but I think they're just giant skyscrapers. So You walk through Rotterdam not... and you feel like it's a Manhattan kind of place. Yeah, it or feels something. cold to me. Yeah. yeah, isn't there a saying? Uh, I think uh, maybe you told me about this, Hans, yes, where this, this, uh, the, the money the sh- is made in Rotterdam, yeah. divided in The Hague. And spent in Amsterdam. I like that. The money is made in Rotterdam. In the harbor, right? Divided at The Hague, which is the capital. Where the government is. Yeah. No, it's not the capital. Okay, the where capital, the government resides. That's crazy again about the Netherlands. The capital is Amsterdam, but the government resides in The Hague. Okay, and the fun is in Amsterdam. That's where you spend the money. Uh, yes, well, there's so much fun there. That's why it attracts all those tourists, right? That's I mean, right. It's, they come for a reason. Let's. Put I, I've also heard that the shirts are sold with the sleeves already yeah. rolled up in Rotterdam. That's in Rotterdam, <laughs> this is travel with it's Rick a Steves. Time. We're talking about traveling in the Netherlands outside of Amsterdam. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. We're joined by Hans de Kiefde and Jodie van Engelstorp, two guides from the Netherlands. Kate's calling in from Portland. Hey, Kate, thanks for your call. Do you have a question or a comment for our guides? Well, my kids are living right now. They've spent um, about 20 months living in Eindhoven, which is about 90 kilometers southeast of Amsterdam. And so we were fortunate to go and spend three weeks with them. And I only spent one day in Amsterdam. I've been to Amsterdam before. We had the opportunity to travel to just a lot of lovely little towns and villages that maybe you wouldn't go to otherwise. So what is the favorite village of yours in the countryside of the Netherlands? Well... I'm a Van Gogh fan, and so the first day we were after we got there, they took us up to the Open Air Museum and the Kohler Mueller Museum. Oh, I love that. Oh, it was fabulous, and I've read about that in your book. If people can take a day trip from Amsterdam or spend the night in that little village there, it is 
wonderful. Let me get Yodi's take on that. Yodi, have you been to the Kroller Mueller Museum with tourists? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. Also, you can cycle there and then you can go and see that beautiful museum where indeed you see more beautiful Van Gogh paintings there than you get to see in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Is that right? So there's two great collections of Van Goghs in the Netherlands. One is at the famous Van Gogh Museum next to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. but you're saying it's an even better collection out near Utrecht at the Kroller Mueller Museum. There's other things there, too. I mean, she has. it's a beautiful collection that, that, that yeah. the um, nice. state has. Did you go to the open-air museum there, Kate? Yes, yes. We did. And, you know, we were there the summer when they were having a heat wave. It was 90-plus degrees. I love that museum, even when it's hot. Oh, uh, yeah. I wish we'd... We had probably five or six hours there. I probably could have spent a couple of days there. Why? What is it about it? What What do you experience when you go there as a traveler? Well, I love anything old. And, you know, for, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and so we don't have things that are that old here. So to go and see these beautiful buildings that have been painstakingly taken apart and moved to this beautiful big park that you can walk around and you might see a 400-year-old mill or a 500-year-old church or a and, and they even have buildings from, like, World War II. I love um, it. They've gathered them together, like you said, from all different corners of the Netherlands, rebuilt these historic buildings, many of them centuries old, creating a little town, a traditional town. There's shops, there's a paper mill, uh, there's a farm. Uh, you've got well, to I'm a knitter, mill. and so I walked into, the, there was a woman that was in there spinning and knitting. Yeah. And so she and I had the best conversation about our techniques and things that we did. And, and then they have a collection of different railroad cars, Hans, as a tour guide, what do you enjoy showing people at the open-air museum near Arnhem? There's a whole collection of all kinds of things, of Dutch stuff. And there's also, the nice thing about this is, like, you have bars, uh, shops with old, um, how would you call it, licorice, Dutch licorice. A candy shop. A candy shop. It's everything. like 100 years ago. And there's an old bar, and once I walked into this bar, and you have these volunteers who come there, right? But also Dutch people who, who, who see their own history. And once I walked into this bar, and there was a whole group of Dutch people drinks in the hand, singing old-fashioned Dutch songs like they do in the, in the bar in the old days. So and these they, were visitors? No, these were visitors, and they reincarnate. They were recre- reliving recreate, it. Yeah, it reliving their, it. It was their time tunnel yeah, experience. And, and come in and have a beer, and you have a beer in your hand before you know it. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, very nice. So, it's not well, only and tourists the who come there. Too, the French fries are wonderful there, too. We, we had beer and French fries everywhere we went. Yeah. It's uh, funny you good. say that, Kate, because I have a memory of being there, and there was a school teacher, and she had 20 students, and she had this whole rack of old-fashioned French fries in in paper cones, mm-hmm. and all the mm-hmm. kids were sitting down to their French fries with their mayonnaise, I believe, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they were in hog heaven. Uh, well, and it isn't just mayonnaise. You'll go to restaurants, and they may have a menu of twenty different things you can dip it in. You get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't call them French fries. <laughs> it's just ketchup, like here. Oh, no. Hans is Hans is, is speaking up as a Dutchman here. What you don't call them French fries? No, 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 no. The most favorite ones are the Belgian fries in the Netherlands. Belgian mm-hmm. fries. Yes, what so. do you call them? We call them fries in general. Fries. Frieten. Eh? Frieten, yeah. Or frieten, Belgische yeah. frieten. Belgian fries. Yeah, that's, oh, okay. uh, they taste better if they're called Belgian French. <laughs> Belgian well, fries, fries, fries. After a long day of walking with a cold beer, they're absolutely wonderful. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Kate, thanks for your call. Well, I appreciate it. Happy I, I'm ready to go back. I'll tell oh, you that. It's the a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful country. Nice. Thank you. Bye-bye. So you see, even in the heat wave, the Netherlands is still very beautiful. Even in the heat wave. Yeah. That's nice. Our Travel with Rick Steves guides to the Netherlands beyond Amsterdam are Hans de Kiefta and Jody van Engelsdorp. Ron's listening in from Corum on Long Island in New York. How are we doing, Rick? Doing good. Thanks for your call. Uh, you guys just talked about my favorite place while I was there, which was the Kroeller Mueller Museum. Mm. 
so I, I won't be that to death. But one thing to mention about it, I that probably had the best outdoor cafe experience there because it was this cafe that was essentially in the middle of a field surrounded by this beautiful art. Mm. It was awesome. Um, so this is, the, let me just make sure our listeners have this straight, and me too. This is the Kroller Mueller Museum. It's it's near Utrecht, is that right, Jody? Um, closer to Arnhem. And, Arnhem. Um, yeah, it's really close to the Open Air Museum in Arnhem. Okay, um, so it's, it's famous for the Van Gogh Museum and a nat- national park where you have free bikes that you can just hop on and, and pedal y- around? Yes, yeah, so I believe you pay like 20 euros to enter this national park, and then you can just get those bikes and it's really big and it's beautiful. And nearby in it is a different establishment, which is the Open Air Folk Museum that yes. we were talking about. Uh, Ron, you're talking about a cafe in the actual park around the Van Gogh Museum that you really enjoyed? That's correct, yeah. So I don't know if it's a year-round thing, but they had set up this you know, large canopy tent, really well done, and you can order uh, you know, drinks, wine, frites, and be able to sit under the shade on a hot day, uh, enjoy a nice cold glass of whatever your choice is, and you can still see all of the art that is in this open-air museum, and it is absolutely beautiful. Did you enjoy uh, um, biking around the Netherlands at all? Uh, I, yeah, we did, actually, and that's, uh, that was what I was going to mention. So we did bike around that national park, but we biked from uh, where we were staying in Harlem out to uh, Blumendal, which is the beach there, hmm. uh, since we were there in the summer. We wanted to make it all the way to, to Zandvoort. Zandvoort? Zandvoort. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, there you go. So how did you and find, you rented a bike in Harlem, and just did you use the little bike, there's little, cute little mini roads with uh, traffic lights and everything just for bicycles. That's correct, yeah. So right in Harlem, there were uh, plenty of places to uh, rent a bike. Uh-huh. We ended up finding a, a convenient one right outside of our hotel that we could, you know, rent the bike, and everything was very clearly marked. It took us about maybe 25 to 30 minutes to reach the beach. Mm. We actually ended up biking through a national park that's on the route to the beach, and that was beautiful. It was my first time biking in Europe. I wasn't afraid of, you know, getting hit or anything like that. It was it was really a pleasant experience. Hans, can you talk a little bit about biking using Harlem as a base? May I make a small correction? Yes. The Curlem Miller Museum is a modern art museum, and it has a lot of Van Goghs. Oh. But the Van Gogh Museum is in Amsterdam. Oh, that's a very good clarification. Yes. So, in the Kroller Mueller National Park, there's a modern art museum famous for its Van Gogh collection. And an indoor and an outdoor museum. And it's got outdoor art, modern and, art? Yes, and indoor. All right. And indoor, there's a, quite a few Van Gogh uh, yeah. paintings. So. Okay. Hans, talk a little bit about biking. Ron apparently had a great time biking from Harlem. Yeah, biking. Well, in general, in the Netherlands, it's bike heaven. There are bike lanes everywhere. There's even express bike lanes. Express I mean, bike lanes? What would that be? In between cities, they're wider, they're concrete, they have no bumps. And certainly with the modern uh, electric bikes, you can really speed up. You can really go. Yes, yes, yes. So businessmen can go, go in their suits to their work. And because they don't burn a lot of calories that way, they arrive dried, right? I mean, not, not, without, not sweat. Without sweat. Okay. Yeah, yeah, not sweat. Yeah, yeah, I try. And Jodi, what would you recommend for people who like to bike if they're exploring the Netherlands? Well, just what Ron said, because um, he cycled through the Kennebra I live very close to that because that's Harlem. And you cycle through this national park, which is the Gennemerdijnen, and it's just beautiful. And you have all these deers, and if you go at deer? sunset, deer, yeah, wow. and at sunset there might be a fox. And 
rabbits and then you get to the dunes uh, or to the beach and there is a cafe there. You can have a drink there and you can go on the sand where you see in the summer a bunch of kite surfers and surfers. And if you cycle through to uh, Zandvoort, which is beautiful on straight next to the boulevard, um, you can get the best fish of the Netherlands, which is at Zandvoort. Wow. And it's just, it's really nice. And uh, if you're really into cycling, what you should do is you should start in Den Haag and cycle right past the coast of the North Sea up up north to Haarlem and maybe even further. Uh, if you like cycling, I also want to suggest the islands of the Netherlands that are okay. beautiful. But for a lot of people, they'll be staying in Haarlem because it's a good base for visiting Amsterdam. And it's yeah. very easy if they're a good biker to rent a bicycle. And, you know, we were talking about the Netherlands being the most densely populated country in Europe. But it sounds like you're biking with the deer and uh, with the rabbits in the park. And it's like a, a parallel yes. world without all the traffic. And before you know it, you're at the beach resorts along the seacoast. And you get to Zandvoort. Yeah, that's what we did. When we were young, you would go out in Zandvoort at the beach. And so you cycle there because, you know, you would have a beer or two, so you cannot take the car back or anything. And at midnight, we would cycle back through the sand dunes and you had to watch out for deers and everything. And it was really good. Yeah. That's an experience I want to have next time. I can All right. Spend, well, uh, I'll do come it on you. over. Okay. Yeah. From <laughs> we'll Harlem to Zandvoort, how long of a bike ride is that? Um, It's, uh, well, if you do it through the sand dunes, it'll take about an hour if you're like experienced, uh-huh. uh, maybe one and a half hour. I did it with a French friend of mine and she cannot cycle. So we take two hours. Okay. Um, so it's an afternoon. It would be a great thing. And then you yeah. have dinner, the best fish. In the Netherlands, in Zandvoort? Yes, definitely. On the beach. And you can cycle. On the beach. Yeah. And the back way, you can do an easier road, so it will just take you half an hour. So. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with two Dutch tour guides, Jody van Engelsdorp and Hans de Kiefta. Let's finish our little discussion with just sharing one favorite moment, one favorite place with a visitor in your country outside of the big city. Hans, where would you take somebody? To my village. To your village. And I take the tours to my village. The village is called Sandport. Uh-huh. So not Sandvoort, but Sandport. And we have a windmill uh, from 1798, if I'm completely right. And they still mill grain, 300,000 kilo a year. A working windmill? Yes. Centuries-old yes. windmill. And still running like in the old days. It's not a tourist attraction. It's it a t- business. It took me two weeks of talking to get my groups in because they don't have tourists and the miller now shows us around and it's like a highlight of the tour maybe. That's nice. And Jodi? Well, for me, the the cycling is always very special because when people come, they don't always think about that and then you take them to nature and it's just very special. If it's not that, it's the Frans Hals Museum of Haarlem. It's beautiful. Frans Hals, he's sort of the classic great master of, of the golden age of the Netherlands. Yes. And, and in Little Harlem, you've got a wonderful museum dedicated just to Franz Hals, and yeah, that was his hometown. Yeah, it's beautiful, and it explains you just how he started out and also how his way of painting really inspired uh, modern artists as well, the way his brush strokes works. It's a great so. museum, Franz Hals mm-hmm. in Harlem, but I'm going to rent a bike, go through the park, past the deer to Zandvoort yeah. and have the best fish in the Netherlands. Good idea. Jodi and Hans, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your beautiful country. It was a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you well. A beetje verliefd was je wel meer, meneer, dat weet je. Je hart kwam wel eens meer op een ideetje. Dat speet je maar, ach weet je, soms vergeet je wel een beetje gauw je eetje. Want 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kitnikon, affiliate support from Sheila Gruzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.